Have you ever tried to do something for Christ's sake and had it be a complete flop? Have you ever tried to hold someone accountable to the Word of God? Say you had a friend, someone that was really in a desperate need, in a serious place, and you knew that God's Word addressed that need, and you you took the Word to them, and it went in one ear and out the other, and there was no effect. How effective do you feel that you are when it comes to modeling Christ for your own children and creating an environment in your home of faith and of hope and of peace? Do you feel sometimes like your sin and your shortcomings and your lousy judgment and your emotional hang-ups have created such a severe limitation to your usefulness to God that, that you're really not of very much use? Well, if, uh, if any of that matches up with your own concerns about your value or usefulness in the hands of God, then the things that Paul is going to say this morning will be of very great importance to you. So I pray that you will be tracking with us this morning. When I started to, to dig into this last portion of chapter 15, my first thought was, well, this is going to be kind of dry. Uh, many of the commentaries on this passage from Romans 15, verse 14 to 33, uh, present outlines that look pretty dry even at the outline level. Things like Paul's defense of his ministry among the Gentiles. Paul's longing to come to Rome. And there's a big yawn factor in, that, in those uh, outline points. But as I look more closely, I realize that in typical fashion, what Paul is doing is he's presenting his ministry experience as an example for us so that we'll understand how ministry works. We'll understand how God uses people to accomplish his work. And there's a great deal right here in Paul's so-called defense of his ministry that we need to pay attention to. Paul is not finished yet in this book giving us revolutionary principles of life. So I pray that, uh, that you're ready to be challenged by his words. This week, we're going to look at just verses 14 to 19, and then next week finish out this chapter. And the way I see it, there are two examples that we need to look at to examine with regard to Paul's ministry in these two chunks. First, in verses 14 to 19, the example that we that shows us that we serve by God's power, not by ours. And secondly, in verses 20 to 33, we serve on God's terms and not on ours. We'll see next week that Paul's plan for how God would use him was quite a lot different than how God actually played things out. It was on God's terms. So this morning, we serve by God's power and not by ours. There are three sub-points here that I want, to, want us to be thinking about as we work through this. First, verse, in verse 14, Paul gives words of affirmation to the saints in Rome regarding the transformation that has already occurred, that has already been accomplished in them. In verses 15 and 16, he speaks of the fact that he's been giving them a lot of very bold reminders because that transformation isn't yet finished. There's still a process of sanctification that is going on. And then finally, in verses 17 to 19, which I see as the, the real heart of the example that we need to glean from Paul, he shows us that the one who actually accomplishes, accomplishes everything, all of these things, through him, is God. Now, first I want to give us just a little bit of, of uh, geographic and historical context for those who are kind of visual, like me. Paul speaks in the last verse of the fact that he has proclaimed the gospel from Jerusalem roundabout as far as Illyricum. Jerusalem, of course, is down here. You see it throughout Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, that he planted churches on his first, second, and third missionary journeys. And on the second and third... He went into Macedonia and then into Greece. And there were a whole lot of churches planted over a large geographical area. He never got to Rome up to this point, which of course is up here. 
But he does mention Illyricum, which is actually off the map up northwest of Macedonia. That's what today would be Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo. It's an area that's, that was in the news uh, some time ago and a pretty large <laughs> measure. But Paul, through, through this one man who had been tasked with bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and establishing the churches among the Gentile cities, a great deal had been accomplished through Paul. In verse 14, Paul begins with words of affirmation to the saints. By the way, there's a color version of the same man. And it's got a lyricum up there, just northwest of Macedonia. That's, that's why I picked that one out of there. Verse 14, he gives words of affirmation. He says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. And verse 14 is the third time in this epistle that Paul has praised the good things that God has already accomplished in the Roman saints. The two previous instances were chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Now, it's safe to say that Paul is not a flatterer. He puts a whole lot more emphasis and verbal real estate into exhortation and admonition than he does into praise. But he consistently makes a point to praise that which God has accomplished and is accomplishing in those to whom he has ministered, those to whom he writes. And when he presents words of affirmation, they are every bit as forceful as when he presents words of rebuke or exhortation. But it's important to note that Paul's thanks and praise for the good things that he sees in those to whom he ministers are never directed toward men. They're never directed toward men. His thanks, his praise is always directed toward God. I'm going to give you a quick run-through And you don't need to write these verses down. If you just go to the beginning of each of his epistles, within the first ten verses, you'll find these, except in one case, and it's just a few verses later. These are affirmation passages. Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Who's he thanking? God. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, to whom? To God, while making mention of you in my prayers. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. See, he points out specific things that he sees that are commendable, and then he commends God for them. That's important. There's just a few others here, but I won't read through them. Colossians Thessalonians, and then in the in the pastoral epistles, where in the epistles where he's talking to individuals, he does the same toward Timothy and Philemon. It's the exact same pattern. I thank my God for you always. Here in Romans fifteen fourteen, there's no exception. He is praising God for the fact that God has done some things in the in the Roman believers. And we'll see in the verses to follow that he is praising only God. And he's crediting only God. But he's very direct also about pointing out those things that are commendable. And that's something we also need to notice. Paul doesn't hold back when he's acknowledging the good things that God has accomplished in his fellow saints any more than he does when he's correcting them. And we need to follow his example in that regard. We should be quick to see what God has accomplished in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should be quick to see that he is still at work 
accomplishing more. He is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. I believe this directly ties back to what we talked about last time regarding God's call to us to no longer recognize any man according to the flesh, but rather to recognize our brothers and sisters according to Christ as new creatures. We are to choose to look for Christ in one another and in ourselves, and we are to be quick to recognize him when we see him. Some Christians seem to be convinced that there's such a thing as a gift of criticism, spiritual gift of criticism. And they're very diligent about exercising that gift. Some are amazingly quick to find and point out fault in their fellow slaves, but they're painfully slow to look for and to praise the good work that God has done and is doing in those same brothers and sisters. Guys, if King David could find only positive things to say about King Saul in his eulogy to Saul after Saul had pursued his life for more than a decade trying to kill him unjustly, then you and I can certainly find good things to see and to, and to declare in one another who share the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. If you can't do that, if you cannot see and rejoice in the Christ whom you see in your brothers and sisters, then the one you're really criticizing is God. Because he's the one who is at work to transform that brother or that sister. It's amazing that some of us seem to think God does a great job with justification and a lousy job with sanctification. And he's actually perfect at both. And Paul, immediately after acknowledging that he's seen some very good things in these saints that God has already accomplished, then says that he's writing, he has been writing some things that are pretty bold. They're pretty tough to swallow. He says, I've written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again. And then he gives a reason that we'll get into in a moment for why he's doing it. But this idea of reminding them again of something that they already know is not, is not unusual. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present in you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. Why is it necessary for the writers of Scripture to say the same thing more than once, to keep reminding us of stuff we already know? It's because we're dense. It's because we are prone to forget what we know is true, and to act as if it weren't true. That's part of that battle between the flesh and the spirit. By the way, any time you hear another person, particularly one who calls himself a Christian, say the words, oh, I've read the Bible, your give-me-a-break meter should be going off the charts. Oh, you've read the Bible? Excuse me? You mean the living and active Word of God which pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow which is able to discern the innermost thoughts of the heart? That Bible? So you've read the Bible and now you're done. That must mean that God is done with you. Because it is His Word that transforms us. It is the Spirit working through the Word that transforms us. We need to be reminded daily of the truth that we are prone so easily to forget so that we will constantly have it in mind. We cannot do without the Word of God every day of our lives. If you're trying to live the Christian life without it, that's something that needs to be corrected. Now Paul explains more specifically in verses 15 and 16 why he has been reminding them of the specific things he's been pointing out in this book. 
He says, Because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. And he says that, he says that he's been giving them bold, bold reminders because of that. Okay, well, how do those things fit together? Well, first of all, the word bold means daring. It means that he's pushing the envelope on the things that he's been presenting. And if you go back and you look at some of the stuff that he's been saying, it's very absolute. He speaks in terms that are hard for us to swallow. If you've been tracking with, with this book thus far, you've certainly felt that at some points. The idea is that throughout this epistle, Paul has been laying out challenges and exhortations and rebukes to the church that he knew would be challenging to them and not easy for them to hear. And one of the very important reasons he's been doing that is because of the Gentile contingent and because of the Gentile-Jew controversy or battle that's been going on in the church. He says that these challenges he's been presenting are a necessary outworking of the grace that God gave to him to carry out a special commission as God's apostle to the Gentiles. He had been called out and tasked with taking the gospel to nations that knew little or nothing of the writings in the Old Testament or of God's dealings with his covenant people in the Old Testament for over a millennium and a half. And God had tasked Paul not only with bringing the gospel to the Gentile world, but with establishing, teaching, and encouraging brand new churches in many Gentile cities that we saw up there a minute ago throughout the Roman Empire. And that task, Paul says, demanded boldness, not timidity, just like he told Timothy later. (laughs) And given a spirit of, not of timidity, but of love and power and discipline. Paul's mission assigned to him by God demanded that he write to the churches in a way that was guaranteed to shake them up, just as I pray it's been shaking us up. And then the second thing he points out is that God's not finished with the church, and that's why the church has to to be continually reminded. And he's talking about a process that's not quite finished, and that is the preparation and presenting of these Gentile churches to God as a holy sacrifice. He says... God appointed him to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The wording that he's using here is uh, is very interesting. He's talking about functioning as a priest. That's an Old Testament idea, except for Christ, of course. But he's, he's painting a little analogy here. He refers to himself as ministering as a priest the gospel of God. And I think this is a masterful stroke on a couple of, from a couple of angles. First, from the angle or perspective of the Jews in his audience. This was the final nail in the coffin of any smugness on the part of the Jewish Christians in Rome. The notion that unclean Gentiles who weren't even trying to keep the law of Moses, who were not even pursuing a law of righteousness based on the Old Covenant, could be made into a blameless sacrifice to God? That was was an amazing concept to, to many of the Jews. And on the other side, from the Gentile perspective, it was a marvelous promise to the Gentile Christians to see Paul, the educated Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, speak of them in such terms. He just cited in the previous passage four Old Testament promises in verses 9 to 12 that spoke of God's purpose in ages past to bring about the inclusion of the Gentiles in his covenant promises and in his covenant people. Now, he says that he is engaged in the task, the unfinished task of presenting the Gentiles to God as an acceptable offering made acceptable by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Again, those would have been very encouraging words to the Gentiles scattered throughout these many cities in Rome. In verses 17 to 19, Paul focuses his reader's attention very directly on who it is that has accomplished and 
is accomplishing the miraculous transformation in the Roman believers to which he has been referring. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And when he said he fully preached the gospel, that didn't mean that every, every human being in all of those cities had heard the gospel. It meant that he had done the task that God had set before him, which was to present the gospel, establish churches, encourage those churches. But Paul was very clear. He didn't stay very long in one place. He wanted to go where the gospel had not yet been preached, and that's what we'll talk about some in the next passage. He said, uh, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered but God causes the growth. So he knew he wasn't doing the whole thing, that God wasn't doing it all through him. Now, what Paul is saying in these verses is very, very important. He's saying God is the only causal agent. God is the one, he is the only one who turns the hearts of men to repentance and faith in Christ and who performs the work of sanctification by which men put on the holiness of Christ. He could not be clearer than he is here about the fact that he sees himself only as an instrument, never as the source. He sees God as the one accomplishing all of the good stuff. And that's no small point. If anyone had cause to boast about what he had endured and given up and done for the sake of Christ, Paul did. In 2 Corinthians 11, he indulges with considerable sarcasm in what he calls a little boasting. And then he gives this lengthy list of life-threatening situations and persecutions that he had endured for the cause of the gospel. But then he says at the end of that section in verse 30, he says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he tells of this transcendent experience he had in which he was transported up to heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, he wasn't quite sure. But he got to see revelations, visions and revelations of God and of heaven that that few, if any, men had ever seen. And then immediately after talking about those visions and revelations, he says... 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, and then he says the same words again, to keep me from exalting myself. You think maybe Paul had a problem with self-exaltation? And he says, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God taught Paul a critically important lesson that each of us has a critical need to learn and embrace And that lesson is reflected in what Paul says in Romans 15 about how God has used and is using him. It, by the way, is a lesson that was not easy for Paul to get. God had to slap him around a little bit before he got it. So we should expect that it's going to be tough for us to get it, and we should be paying close attention. It is through our weaknesses that God is most powerfully glorified, not through our strengths. When men see our personal strengths at work, the things that are just kind of intrinsically true of us, it's easy for them and for us to credit us with being special, with being effective in a way that other people might not ever be able to accomplish. 
But beloved, every single time that we get credit for men, from men, for accomplishing good and eternal things, that credit is misplaced. Every single time men think that they've found cause to exalt us, they've been seriously confused about what actually happened. Nothing good comes from us. There is only one who is good. But when God accomplishes great things through our weaknesses, then there's little chance for anyone to be confused about who did the good stuff. God's power is thus manifested most perfectly in our weaknesses and not in our strengths. When God hands you a daunting task that you consider yourself utterly inadequate to do, rejoice. Rejoice! Because when He does it through you anyway, (laughs) nobody's going to be confused about who did it. We tend to go for the tasks that line up with our strengths, and God tends to put us into the tasks that line up with our weaknesses. So he will be more glorified. I love what my brother Robert said last week about his own sense of inadequacy to preach and teach in front of a group. You notice he said that while he was standing up here in front of this group preaching. He was fully aware that God is his only adequacy. And God ministered to me And I'm sure to all of you through his words, because his words were true to the word. That's how it works. This is far too important for us to miss or to take lightly. This is fundamental to the Christian life and to every work of ministry that people set set about to do. One of the most freeing truths that we get to lay hold of as children of God is that it is God, not us, who does all the good stuff. We get to be useful as God's agents or instruments to proclaim the gospel, to build up the church of Jesus Christ, but we never get to be the source or the cause of any of that. Ever. We tend to agree with that, but act like it's not true. 2 Corinthians 3, in that passage, Paul poses a very interesting question. He asks if he and his co-workers need a letter of commendation to confirm the legitimacy and effectiveness of their ministry among the Corinthians. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? And then he says, you, Corinthians, believers in Corinth, you are our letter of commendation written by God. You might tend to think that uh, if a guy like Paul is your example, that your template for ministry uh, is too high, your, your standard's too high. But look at what Paul says here. He says in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, and such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you look at Paul and at what God accomplished through Paul, you again, you might think, I can never measure up to that example. And if you think those thoughts, you're seriously on the wrong track with what Paul is saying. There are a couple of major problems with that line of thinking in light of what God declares to be true. First, is that that way of thinking assumes that the scope or magnitude of a person's ministry determines the value of that ministry. That the person whose ministry impacts the most people is the one whose ministry has the greatest value. And that idea is completely foreign to Scripture. We are God's instruments, and guess what? God knows His instruments, and He knows how to use them. 
He knows exactly what He intends to accomplish through you, through the gifts that He's given to you, through the measure of faith that He's given to you. He knows what He wants to do with you. The notion that a man like Billy Graham, who can pack an entire football stadium with people and expose them all to the gospel at the same time, is more valuable in the eyes of God than the ministry of a man who faithfully disciples a handful of guys week after week or an elderly woman who prays valiantly for the needs in the body. That's a notion that has no foundation in Scripture. God determines the gifts of each member of His body and He determines the ministry in which those gifts will be put to use. By the way, how many men did Jesus actually come alongside and disciple in a personal way during his three years of ministry? Twelve. Not 12,000. The value judgments that we make comparing one servant of God to another, one ministry to another, are man-made value judgments. They're worldly distinctions that have no meaning at all to God. The second problem with thinking that your usefulness to God could never match what you see in some of the people you consider super saints, and the problem that warrants the most attention is that such thinking gives you and other men far too much credit. Our usefulness to God is not about us at all. It's about Him. The whole notion that your struggles and weaknesses, even your sins, Or on the other hand, your talents and your strengths determine what God can and will accomplish through you is a notion that gives you credit you don't get to have. And it robs God of credit that belongs only to Him. I want to, for a moment, address the issue of the impact of sin on our usefulness to God so that I'm not confusing anyone. Here's a simple fact. Every man and woman that God uses to minister to others is still sinning. 1 John chapter 1, if you say you are, present tense, without sin, you're making God a liar. You do not have to be sinless to be powerfully used by God. If you did, there'd be no ministry going on at all except that which God did directly without the agency of men. And that's not generally how God does things. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, How shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? God intends to use human agency to accomplish the ongoing work of Christ. And that means he's using sinful people. Justified, redeemed, People who are being sanctified, yes, but sinful people. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter how much or how grievously a person sins. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself would be disqualified. But you know what? He does not say, lest the message that I have preached be ineffective. He doesn't say that. Because what did he say at the beginning of this book about that message? He said, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The word of God is inherently powerful and those who declare it are used by God. In Philippians 1, Paul talks about men who proclaim the gospel from self-serving motives. And look at what he says about them. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. The reason I point that out is not to to, to make sin inconsequential. We are accountable to God to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to be holy vessels in His hands. But beloved, even the purity of our motives 
And the perfection of our obedience is not the determinant of our usefulness to God. God is the determinant of our usefulness to God. Go read the story of Balaam sometime. He wanted to mess with Israel. And God used him to proclaim his promises to Israel. And this is yet another of the many revolutionary but dirt simple truths that we find in the Bible and only in the Bible that we find very, very hard to accept at face value. But we must not miss it because it is far too important. We are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. I memorized those two verses about 35 years ago, and I consider them to be the bedrock of whatever ministry God accomplishes through this vessel. I would not be here this morning in this position if I didn't believe what those verses proclaim. Because I'm far too aware, imperfectly aware, but still painfully aware, of my own shortcomings and, yes, of my own sins. To think that God could ever do anything good for you through me if he was not the one doing it. Now, this is an exceedingly freeing truth. (laughs) When I was in seminary a hundred years ago, I read a biography of Hudson Taylor written by his son and daughter-in-law. The book was Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I highly recommend it. It had a huge impact on my thinking about what actually makes us useful to God. Taylor was the founder of China Inland Mission. It was a pioneering mission in China in the latter half of the 19th century. And one of the key themes of this little book has to do with Brother Taylor's long-standing personal struggle over his own lack of practical holiness and his resulting sense of inadequacy for the daunting task into which he had entered on Christ's behalf. Hudson spent a good bit of his ministry convinced that his own sins and shortcomings were creating a major impediment to the work that he so desired to carry out on God's behalf. That fear often filled him with great anxiety, and it robbed him of joy in the work that he was so earnestly engaged in doing. For one extended period of time, that anxiety became almost crippling to him. Writing to his beloved sister, Hudson said, I felt the ingratitude, the danger, the sin of not living nearer to God. I prayed, I agonized, fasted, strove, sought, more time for meditation, but all without avail. Each day brought its register of sin and failure, of lack of power. To will was indeed present within me, but how to perform I found not. All the time I felt assured that there was in Christ all I needed. But the practical question was how to get it out. He was rich truly, but I was poor. He was strong, but I weak. I knew full well that there was in the root, the stem, abundant fatness. But how to get it into my puny little branch was the question. I love that. I can relate to that. Have you ever had thoughts like that? Finally, after operating for a long time in that painful mode, God used a few words in a letter from a close friend to bring Brother Taylor to a major threshold that radically and permanently transformed his thinking and his contentedness. He came to understand in a very pervasive way that his usefulness to God had nothing to do with himself and everything to do with the greatness of his God. That the one and only measure of what God could and would accomplish through him was God, period. Writing further to his sister about this marvelous transformation, Hudson said, 
as I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed Spirit poured directly into my soul. How great seemed my mistake in wishing to get the sap, the fullness, out of Him. I saw not only that Jesus will never leave me, but that I am a member of His body, His flesh, His bones. The vine is not the root merely. It is all. Root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not that alone. He is soil and sunshine, air and showers, and 10,000 times more than we have ever dreamed, wished, or needed. Oh, the joy of seeing this truth. Can Christ be rich and I poor? And then he said the sweetest part is the rest which full identification with Christ brings. I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize this, for he I know is able to carry out his will, and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how, that is for him to consider Not for me. For in the easiest position He must give me His grace, and in the most difficult, His grace is sufficient. There is no fear that His resources will prove unequal to the emergency. And then He says, The only power for deliverance from sin or for true service is Christ. Hudson realized that he had been trying to to somehow coax the power for godliness and effective ministry out of Christ and into himself. When in reality, power and godliness always reside only in Jesus Christ. We have to look to him. We have to rest in him. We have to find every molecule of our sufficiency in him or we will know nothing of his power and sufficiency. Now, what Brother Taylor was talking about was not a passive sort of let-go-and-let-God approach to life as some of his successors seem to paint it. There's no passivity in his words at all. I challenge you to read the book. He talks about living every moment for Christ, about a very active commitment to take his eyes off himself and to trust in Christ alone as he pressed on daily and without compromise with the work of Christ. Now, if you can't make sense of that, if it seems like those are contradictory ideas, that we find our entire sufficiency in Christ and we press on with both feet and with full vigor with the work of Christ, if those seem like contradictory ideas, then I challenge you to fall to your knees and to ask God to make it clear to you how this works because this is eminently important and it's as simple as it gets. We're the ones who make it complicated. We're the ones who are constantly adding ourselves to the mix when there is no mix. There is only Christ. We run this marathon called the Christian life by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and by never never taking our eyes off of him. From the time that he came to pervasively understand that simple reality, Hudson Taylor experienced far greater joy in doing the work that God had assigned to him. But it's very illuminating that he didn't say that any of this made him better or more effective. In fact, he said the opposite. He said, I am no better than before in a sense I do not wish to be, nor am I striving to be. But I am dead and buried with Christ and risen too. And now Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 The dramatic shift of focus from self to Christ did not make his ministry more effective. Because in reality, God had already made his ministry effective according to the measure of his grace. What it made him was more joyful and more peaceful. That's always what happens when we take our eyes off ourselves and put them firmly on Christ. That's when we learn what it means to cease from our own labors and to enter into the Sabbath rest that belongs to us as the children of God. 
the rest that never stops. That's when we learn to walk in Christ with joy and peace. The Apostle Paul did not come to be convinced of the effectiveness of his ministry by looking at himself or even by looking at the transformation that had occurred in the people to whom he was ministering. In many respects, some of the churches that he wrote to were still a big mess. Probably the biggest mess of all was Corinth. But it is in his letter to Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 3, that he says those believers were a letter of commendation of his ministry. And here in chapter 15 of Romans, Paul declares that through his ministry, which God had empowered through signs and wonders and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, God was bringing about the obedience of the Gentiles in word and deed, and God was turning the Gentile believers into a blameless sacrifice to himself. Who's doing all of that? God. Beloved, every single one of you has a ministry, a divine assignment from God. (laughs) My brother Kerry told me this week that when those two dear African pastors were here last week visiting, and when they were introduced to his son, Nathan, that one of them gave a greeting to Nathan that consisted of saying, and what is your ministry? I love that. Every one of you has a measure of faith given to you by God and has one or more spiritual gifts given to you by God. And God intends to put those gifts to work. And you know what God calls success when it comes to your ministry? The success of your work of ministry is not measured by how far you've come in the process of sanctification. It's not measured by the results that you get to see in the lives of those to whom you minister. If you are loving and serving others in utter dependence upon God, then you are successful in the work of ministry because your success is a function of God's greatness, not yours. The results of your efforts are God's problem. Your obedience is your assignment. There'll be times when you work long and hard and diligently to minister to some person or group of people and you'll see little or no tangible, measurable result. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Every parent goes through long periods of time in the lives of his or her children that feel like decades when the instruction and fervent prayer and deep emotional investment that you pour into your children seem to have little or no effect. And if you think that's unusual, talk to some other Christian parents, because it's not. But here's the guarantee you have from God. There is only one who is adequate to be a parent. And that's God. He is your adequacy, and he is all the adequacy you will ever need. If you are prayerfully and humbly depending on God as you seek to love and serve your children and to raise them up in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord, then God is accomplishing exactly what he intends to accomplish through you. It's not about you. It's about him. There is great joy in that task when we approach it on that basis. Back in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul said that the Holy Spirit takes our feeble prayers and he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. He renders our woefully imperfect prayers perfect in the eyes of God. And he does the very same thing through our feeble and badly flawed efforts at ministry. That's what God does. He superintends that which would otherwise be common and useless and he uses it for his perfect purposes. The divine overwhelms the mortal. (laughs) He's been doing that for a long time. In the Old Testament, he appointed men as prophets, men who were as weak and as flawed as those to whom they proclaimed the truth of God. And he used the words of those men to give life to his people. When Jesus came in the flesh, he called simple, uneducated fishermen and a despised tax gatherer 
along with one guy that might have been considered really respectable, Luke, the physician, and later a Christ-persecuting Pharisee named Saul. And through the indwelling work of his Holy Spirit, he used those very mortal and very flawed men to create and establish and encourage his church. And he continues today to give life to lost men and to build up his church through the likes of you and me. And the measure and the magnitude of the work that he is doing has nothing to do with our adequacy for the task. It has only to do with our extraordinary God. Does that make sense? It needs to make sense. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, Paul asks, Who is adequate for these things? And his answer is that God is our only adequacy and is all the adequacy that we need. And so Paul is able to say with absolute confidence and joy, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Loving Father, we pray that you would teach us this amazing lesson that you taught Paul and that you taught a guy like Hudson Taylor that our usefulness is all and only about you. Teach us what it means, Lord, to, to serve with all that you have given to us and to do so joyfully with peace, resting in the knowledge, Lord, that it is your labor through us that accomplishes everything. Teach us what that means, Father. Make that, make that not words and platitudes, but make that the very foundation of how we approach everything that we do. We pray it so that we may be more powerfully used, not because of us, Lord, but because of you, and so that we may experience the amazing joy that you intend for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.